0: Dear BMC listeners, please be aware that this episode contains sensitive content relating to eating disorders.
1: That's how they get you because we're constantly striving toward an ideal that doesn't actually exist. And when you finally meet it, it changes again. I mean, lots of writers have suggested that this is one of the ways in which we keep women underpowered is by forcing them to focus on the ways that their body appeared to others instead of focusing on actually tackling systemic issues that they may be facing. Naomi Wolf has a fantastic quote about society not allowing women to see past their dinner plates um, in order to actually recognize the fact that they are being structurally discriminated against in various different ways.
0: This is Brain Matter Chatter, the podcast where we discuss mental health and academia with students, faculty, and the experts. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Brain Matter Chatter. I'm your host, Ruby, and I'm here with my co-host, Haley. Hi, everyone. Today, we'll be talking about eating disorders. So to start off, let's define eating disorder. Oxford Dictionary defines an eating disorder as any of a range of psychological disorders characterized by abnormal or disturbed eating habits. But what does this really mean, Haley? What are disturbed eating habits? There are several
2: behaviors that would be considered disturbed or disordered eating habits, and these include fasting or chronic restrained eating, skipping meals, binge eating, self-induced vomiting, restrictive dieting, unbalanced eating, which basically means that you're restricting a major food group, such as cutting out carbs or fatty foods, misusing laxatives, diuretics, or enemas, using steroids or creatines or other supplements designed to enhance athletic performance and alter physical appearance, as well as using diet pills. And often disordered eating is accompanied by feelings of guilt or shame.
0: That's really interesting. And I I guess that's really key, right? Those feelings of guilt and shame, because when I think about those habits that you had mentioned, I think, well, you know, it's probably not uncommon for someone to engage in one or two of these in trying to lose weight, for example, right? So if we do engage in these habits every now and then, are, are we experiencing disordered eating or do we have an eating disorder?
2: Not necessarily. So eating disorders have a very careful set of criteria that's used to diagnose them. And this has been laid out in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5 or the DSM-5. And so basically the DSM-5 breaks down eating disorders into several different disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or binge eating disorder, as well as some other different eating disorders. And we won't cover all of the eating disorders in this podcast, but you can see our infographic for more information on what the different eating disorders are and how they're diagnosed please make sure that you remember that this isn't a replacement for clinical diagnosis. So if you feel that your eating habits might be unhealthy or that they impact your quality of life, please make sure that you do consult a medical professional.
0: Yes, that's super important. And just for your information, that infographic can be found on our Twitter page and Instagram page. And our handle is at brain matter chat. So in preparing for this episode, Haley and I did a bit of research and we looked into eating disorders in students. And what we were able to find is a fairly recent study that shows us some pretty alarming stats. So the study was conducted in 2021, so just this year. And they looked at 12 US institutions and surveyed about 9,700 graduate and undergraduate students. And what they found was that about 30% Thirty percent of students had engaged in compensatory behaviors. So, what does this mean? Well, compensatory behaviors are things that an individual does out of guilt or concern for weight and shape following eating. So, you know, Haley mentioned some of those behaviors earlier. Some really vivid examples of those include uh, self-induced vomiting, laxative use, and excessive exercise.
2: Another alarming thing that these researchers found is that 40% of individuals in the study engaged in objective binge eating, which is described as a sense of having lost control over your eating at the time you were eating. And so it's important to note that in the case of objective binge eating or in compensatory behaviors, presenting with one of these symptoms doesn't categorize you necessarily as having an eating disorder, but it, it does raise cause for concern. And the fact that we're seeing both of these behaviors being quite prevalent in the academic community is alarming.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Haley. And so, you know, if you are experiencing any of these symptoms or think that these might be interfering with your quality of life, we do really urge you to to seek out uh, a medical professional. That's right, Ruby. And so on today's episode,
2: we've invited a special guest to speak with us about her experience with eating disorders, as well as some of the amazing research she does surrounding the topic.
0: So without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Jacqueline Siegel. So to start us off, Jacqueline, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What did you study in your PhD here at Western? Congrats on your recent defense, by the way. And what will you be doing at your new postdoc position? Congrats again.
1: Thank you. Yeah, sure. So I like to say that my research is three pronged. There's three different intersecting and overlapping components of it, one of which is bodies and body image. So I study eating disorders, um, the way that people perceive their own bodies. I study gender. So the way that people experience their gender and how gendered pressures influence people's experiences throughout their lives. And then social justice. So taking an intersectional component to it and examining how it is that stigma and stereotypes influence people's experiences of gender and their bodies. So if you look, if you were to draw like a big old Venn diagram with three different parts to it you would see that all of these intersect and overlap in in different ways and so we see the intersections of all of these things happening so we're going to see things like feminist stigma and weight stigma coming out in there we're going to see sexual harassment and self-objectification sexual objectification um, perceptions of rape and how it is that gender influences perceptions of rape and all different sorts of things along those lines Um, so I just finished my PhD at Western Woo! Very excited to be done with that. (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's a really nice feeling. I have a a big sense of completeness there. Um, My dissertation was six studies. Uh, I created and validated a new scale to assess both kind of aligned and ambivalent components of feminist identity. So I'm really interested in how and why people do and do not call themselves feminists and then what they do once they do or do not call themselves feminists. So when people do and don't act on their feminist intentions, and then also I've got another pretty substantial stream of research that focuses on the body image and eating disorder stuff. And that's where uh, my postdoc is taking me. So I am presently doing this interview from San Diego because I am starting up a new postdoc at San Diego State University in the body image, sexuality, and health lab. So I'm going to be a postdoctoral research scholar there, and I'm taking over as project director of the Pride Body Project.
2: Wow. That's great. Good for you. Yeah, congrats. Thanks. Thanks. It sounds like you have a lot of exciting things going on right now. To get started on our eating disorders episode, we just wanted to ask if you would mind sharing a little bit about your experience with your own eating disorder with our listeners. Sure.
1: Um, so I like to say that I, I take a, a pretty comprehensive approach to studying eating disorders uh, based on, not only on the different fields that I've kind of come from as a, that have brought me to where I am now, but also my lived experiences that have, you know, kind of ignited a, a passion for eating disorder research. So when I was growing up, my mother had an eating disorder. Um, she talked about it quite constantly. Um, and in a way she it had never been addressed kind of professionally. And so in many ways it was kind of glorified. And so when I developed an eating disorder later on, it wasn't really too much of a surprise. Um, it, it was just kind of something that was normative um, in my own household, which is a problem. And if that's something that resonates with people, uh, help is available and it's important to get it. Um, but so I initially back in high school, I I did a summer of research at Brown and I was interested in genetic susceptibility loci potentially for um, anorexia. So I was doing some genetic research there. And when I got to Villanova, which is where I did my undergrad, I assumed that I would be continuing that line of research with a comprehensive science major. But as soon as I started taking psychology courses, I realized that like I was much more interested in the psychology of eating disorders there. Um, So just, um, it's a little bit complicated, my trajectory with Uh, my time at Villanova because I skipped a year of undergrad and I also did a five-year program um, for my master's. And so I did my bachelor's and my master's in four years. And during that time, I, um, I was studying eating disorders the whole time. And for my master's, what I wanted to do was more clinical oriented work for that focused on eating disorders, but nobody was doing that work. And so I teamed up with my psych of gender professor, who was an industrial organizational psychologist, and I did um, a, a really large-scale grounded theory study about gender differences between women and men who manage eating disorders at work. And so that's been um, now published in Psych of Women Quarterly and Psych of Men and Masculinities. And then I came to Western uh, University in Canada. Well, I suppose most people who are listening to this are familiar with Western. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to work with Dr. Rachel Caligero because she does like really just kind of interesting work on eating disorders and weight stigma and from, she takes it from a feminist lens. So for someone who's interested in gender and eating disorder, she was really just kind of the perfect supervisor. And I was a yoga teacher. I still am a yoga teacher. And she was doing some work with mindfulness and eating disorders. And so I really thought that my research was going to go there. Um, but it didn't, because as soon as I got to Western, I realized that there was a potential for me to kind of tap into and develop a more comprehensive understanding of uh, kind of nuanced feministy stuff, and so I wanted to do that instead. And so I spent four years working on a dissertation to do that, uh, and now, fortunately, I am back in, the, um, back in the body image and eating disorders world. And truly, it never left me. While I was working on my dissertation, I also maintained the stream of research on body image and eating disorders. So um, I'm glad to be back into it, and I feel like I can kind of dive into it fully. But yeah, personal and professional experiences have all kind of led me to this place.
2: For your postdoc, are you going to continue studying the interplay between gender and eating disorders, or are you going to focus more on just eating disorders more generally?
1: Yeah, so the postdoc is neat, and um, my supervisor of the postdoc and I have kind of talked about the fact that my time as a postdoc is not going to be 100% on the project that I was hired for. And the project that I was hired for is this project director position for the Pride Body Project, which is an eating disorders prevention program among sexual minority men. And um, so we're seeing the interplay of sexuality and eating disorders there primarily. However, the work that I intend to do on my own to continue my own stream of research during my postdoc is focused on um, embodied sexuality and how it is that sexuality and disordered eating kind of work together um, and don't, and then what also how it is that as embodiment increases post eating disorder recovery, how it is that sexuality changes as well. So it's focused more on sexuality than gender, but obviously sex and gender are intricately intertwined in many ways, and so. That was the long answer. The short answer is, yeah, kind of.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That seems like a really interesting niche of research there, and we'll have to have you back on the show to talk more about it for sure. So Jacqueline, just to shift gears a little bit, can you tell us a bit more about your recovery process? So what prompted you towards seeking recovery in the first place? Was there some sort of identifiable moment that made you realize that things needed to change?
1: Um, yeah, so there are two real moments that come to mind. So I I struggled with disordered eating all through high school, but because I was not thin, it didn't really matter to other people in the ways that I knew it was distressing to me. And so while I was engaged in lots of disordered eating behaviors, because I wasn't thin, a, it wasn't identifiable. And when I told people that I was stressed about it, they were like, ah, it's just a diet. You just need to work harder at it. So that's weight stigma hard at play there. And um, I even come at that from a place of, of, you know, moderate thin privilege, but for people in, in, with higher body weights, like it's almost impossible to have these identified correctly. But anyway, we can talk about that later. But, uh, so I struggled with disordered eating all through high school. And then when I got to college, it got really bad. Um, I was diagnosed with anorexia in, when I was 19, like I had just turned 19 and I should have gotten treatment then, but I didn't. Um, I waited because I was like, oh, I can figure this out on my own, but, um, I couldn't. And so about two years later, uh, there were two defining moments. I mean, by the time that I actually got help, I was medically compromised. And so there was a moment where, um, you know, there was a night when I was out, it was the NCAA championship and Villanova had like won the big championship game. And so we're all like running through the streets partying and, um, Eventually, I was freezing because that's what happens when you have no body fat on you. And so I wanted to get back to my dorm room, uh, but my legs actually gave out um, like halfway through uh, walking back to my dorm. And then like I had to drag myself up to my dorm room. And then when I got into my dorm room, my heart was beating really fast. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. And then I was like, "Ah, I think I might need help. So that was the night that I left school, um, but there was a moment before then that really was a trigger for me that I was doing the research. I was doing these interviews with women who were managing eating disorders at work, and someone said to me, it's so inspirational that you're recovered and you now get to do this, and I was like severely malnourished, very, very ill at the time, and I just remember feeling this intense sense of cognitive dissonance between what... This person thought I was, and who I actually was behind my phone. And that moment still sticks with me because I just felt like such a hypocrite. And uh, it felt really inauthentic to be doing the work um, and to be essentially lying to these people who were trusting me with their stories. Uh, And so that was really um, a big motivator for me. But yeah, those were the big two. And then I left school and I was still like, nah. I can figure this out on my own. And then when I saw a doctor, she was like, no, you can't. (laughs) So that was, those were like, it was a a whole cluster of, of moments that happened all within March of, I suppose it was 2016. And so that was when I initially got help. And then truthfully, like eating disorder recovery is not linear. So I was in treatment for 10 weeks, but I relapsed really hard afterwards. And so I've been in the situation of finally being like, okay, I actually need to get help a couple of different times since then. Um, And that's normal, and that's okay.
0: Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Jacqueline. One of the things that you said really resonated with me. It was not fitting the stereotype of what an eating disorder should look like, right? So not necessarily being extremely thin or sitting at a very low body weight. And because this is the common perception of eating disorders, I wonder whether you might have individuals who experience disordered eating that might go undiagnosed or unrecognized or not really even recognize it in themselves. And so I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how an eating disorder is clinically diagnosed.
1: Oh, okay. So as per the diagnostic and statistical manual, there are three eating disorders that are primarily diagnosed in adult populations. One of which is anorexia nervosa, which is like the traditional eating disorder that we think about when we think about eating disorders. And it's characterized by um, kind of cognitive distortions about what one's own body looks like and a desire to lose weight, even if one is at a a particularly low weight. And there are some specifics that are associated with it that have changed in the new DSM-5. Like in, in one version of the DSM, you had to have lost your menstrual period, which is ridiculous because it automatically meant that people who never menstruated could not possibly be diagnosed with an eating disorder. There were also like specific weight limits. In order to be diagnosed with anorexia, you had to have like lost X percent of your body weight and you have to have a specific BMI. We also know that that similarly does not take into account other people's experiences. And still eating disorder severity is characterized by BMI levels, which is similarly ridiculous because BMI is influenced by so many other things uh, other than severity of eating disorder. So it's a little bit complicated still. But so eating uh, anorexia nervosa has a binge... Purge subtype and a restrictive subtype. The binge purge subtype does involve the behaviors that we typically see associated with bulimia, which involves um, eating a rapid quantity of food in a short period of time and then purging that. Um, And then the restrictive subtype is like just purely, you know, either eating extremely little, eating only specific foods that are regarded as like safe to you. Um, And so those are the two different types of anorexia. Uh, Bulimia nervosa, as I kind of talked about with. anorexia, binge purge subtype, it's not always characterized by a desire to lose weight or to be very, very thin in the same way that anorexia is. But it is characterized by these recurrent experiences of binge eating and then purging. And purging can be vomiting, laxative abuse, overexercise, it can be fasting, it can be lots of different ways that you compensate for engaging in the binge behavior. And then binge eating disorder is the newest one to the DSM And it's largely hallmarked by these recurrent episodes of binge eating without the compensatory behaviors. And so people with binge eating disorder are typically at a higher body weight. Um, People with bulimia nervosa typically at average body weight and people with anorexia nervosa, particularly restrictive subtype, often we do see them at that very low body weight. However, anorexia can occur with people of all different body weights as well. we see a lower body weight because of the nutritional restriction, but that happens later on that happens like much further into the eating disorder. And so once you see that you're, you're pretty late into it. Um, But all that to say eating disorders can happen to any people of any gender, any racial background, socioeconomic status, um, body size, there's no like look for what an eating disorder looks like. Um, And also people with eating disorders behave differently in, around people versus when they're by themselves, and so it's it's very hard for a, a lay person to identify someone who has an eating disorder, but there are clinical interviews that are conducted when someone is actually in the process of being diagnosed that allow us to tap more, to at least tap better into what those behaviors look like and what people are actually doing and whether it's clinically significant or not. However, I do feel compelled to also say that a lot of those um, clinical tools don't capture eating disorders in populations that they were not kind of normed in. And so we're not really seeing eating disorders in men being captured appropriately always. We're not seeing eating disorders in higher weight people. And we're not seeing eating disorders in non-white people being captured completely because the tools that we have developed to evaluate eating disorder symptoms were largely normed in young, thin, wealthy white women.
2: So to build on that, I was really interested in one of your recent papers where you and your colleagues look at how people perceive Two individuals who are both struggling with eating disorder behavior, but one individual is underweight and the other is overweight. Something that I found really interesting about that study was basically that being overweight was perceived by others as being a more severe problem than engaging in clinically significant eating disorder behavior. So even though the overweight individual is engaging in dieting or exercise practices that might be unhealthy, people were still likely to recommend that they continue these practices just because they're overweight. In your opinion, is there anything that can be done at the institutional level that might be able to improve the recognition and treatment of people who do have eating disorder symptoms, but they don't fit into these common stereotypes of being white or thin? So, I mean, there is a, in my opinion, (laughs) there is a critical issue in the Diagnostic
1: and Statistical Manual, which is the distinction between quote unquote, typical anorexia and atypical anorexia. So atypical anorexia is typically diagnosed in individuals who are at higher weight statuses compared to typical, like general anorexia, which is diagnosed in people who are typically have a lower body weight. And so this divide, this fundamental divide in the very book that we use to diagnose these conditions trivializes the experience of of eating disorders in higher weight populations. And so we were not in any way surprised that people were just as able to detect that both of the individuals in that study were dealing with eating disorders, but that it didn't really matter that the person with the higher weight status was, was dealing with an eating disorder Two participants, at least, and people actually encouraged that person to continue doing what they were doing to lose weight, um, despite the fact that they recognized that they had an eating disorder. So like the results of that study were not, um, surprising to us because we know that atypical anorexia is, uh, is trivialized. I think, At an institutional level, and also just like at a systemic level, we really need to be talking more about the ramifications of weight stigma within the ways that we, you know, diagnose these conditions, certainly, but also in the ways that we just treat people in fat bodies. Um, If... So anorexia has one of the highest mortality rates of any psychiatric condition. And if we cannot properly diagnose that in some bodies, then fundamentally the way that we go about doing that is wrong. Um, We need better life-saving measures to protect the people who are most at risk of actually experiencing um, harm as a result of this. So I think more education about weight stigma, how it manifests and ramifications is necessary at, at every level.
0: Absolutely, Jacqueline, I completely agree with that. Fighting weight stigma at the systemic level is crucial. And I think another factor that really trivializes Uh, eating disorders is how they're perceived and conceptualized. So I remember in my master's doing a literature review on eating disorders as it was sort of part of my research then, and I came across a couple of papers that talked about eating disorders being a young, rich, white girl disease, right? So not really taken that seriously at that point. And Now there's lots of literature surrounding eating disorders looking at some of the underlying factors uh, that play a role in them, right? Um, And so one of the major models that I had seen was an addictions model of eating disorders where the reward system is actually implicated. And so I'm wondering if you can comment on some of the literature that's out there on the neuroscience behind eating disorders.
1: So there are certainly... Um, addiction models of disordered eating. But Mm -hmm. as we were talking about at the very beginning of this, thinking about eating disorders requires a comprehensive approach because it would be oversimplifying what eating disorders are to say that they are, that they merely mirror addiction Mm -hmm. because there are, you know, obviously within my own research, um, we talk about sociocultural factors, genetic factors, um, that's that influence this. However, certainly there's like a dopamine hit every time that you are, you know, engage in the behavior that helps control whatever it is, is happening inside of your brain. There's another dopamine hit every time someone tells you that you look good because you have been engaged in these behaviors. Um, there's ways that the experience of being in an eating disorder, uh, mirrors that of, of addiction, but I don't, it's not like a one-to-one comparison.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you think it's harmful to talk about eating disorders within a addictions framework.
1: That's a good question. I don't think it is harmful. I think it's useful for understanding some components of it, but I think it's important that we qualify our discussions about it by saying it's one perspective and one component of it, and it's not. It doesn't explain the totality of eating disorders because if it did, then we could use the same strategies to treat eating disorders that we do to treat addiction, which is, of course, very difficult to treat. But um, we know that, like, there are some programs that do mirror 12 step programs and, you know, having a support person that you can constantly be in contact with that can be helpful. Um, but we have to treat them differently than we treat um, addictions. And so it's useful, but it's not. It's not complete to say that they are just like addictions.
2: What would a typical treatment plan look like for, say, anorexia? I don't know what the gold standard therapy for anorexia treatment would be, but be curious to hear about more about that. Sure. So there are lots of
1: different approaches to treating eating disorders. And something that we haven't really talked about is that eating disorders have a really high comorbidity rate with other conditions as well. So it really depends on what the comorbidities look like. But when we talk about eating disorder treatment, we typically talk about it at three levels. So the highest level is like residential or inpatient treatment. um, And You know, I guess I'll go into what some of these look like uh, after I explain them. But so that's the highest level of care. So that's typically, you only typically go into inpatient if you are medically compromised and you need constant surveillance. There's also partial hospitalization um, or day patient programs, which are typically like nine to three. And you would have like two of your meals with your group uh, and you're doing therapy for the other hours. And then there's intensive outpatient, which is typically like three hours um, three hours a day, sometimes in the nights, you can do it in the mornings, but just take consistent time throughout the day, two days a week where you are doing intensive therapy with your group, with sometimes an individual therapist, a psychiatrist, a dietitian, and then also eating a meal with, um, with your group. And those are typically, if, if we're looking at treatment centers, those are the three options that are offered. And then also like some people don't do the inpatient, outpatient programs um, There's also CBTE so cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders is a 10week program um, that involves kind of retraining your brain to to work with food um, and there's certainly some benefits there. Some people do dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, there's really any type of therapy you can imagine there is a version for eating disorders. Uh, and oftentimes in the treatment centers, what we'll see is CBT is what's being done because cognitive behavioral therapy is, of course, um, it's like, you know, everybody loves CBT. <laughs> it's it's easy to administer. It's empirically supported. Uh, it's, it's good. Good stuff. Um, so I can't talk too, too much about residential eating disorder treatment because I never did it. But in my experience, I did partial hospitalization. Um, it, I did... Yeah, day patient program, so partial hospitalization to IOP, so intensive outpatient. So my experience was that I would get to my treatment center at nine. Um, I lived at home, well, well, I lived with one of my aunts when I was doing treatment, and so I'd get there at nine. Based on the meal plan that I was on with my dietitian, I was supposed to have already eaten a meal before I got there because I had to, uh, I, because. Of my medical situation, I had to gain weight during eating disorder, uh, treatment. So I had to eat before I got there. And then I had breakfast with everybody. Uh, and then we would do like two hours of therapy. So either, um, we sometimes had art therapy. Sometimes we had like movement therapy or body image workshops. And then we'd do big group therapy. Then we'd eat lunch together. Then we'd all like process. <laughs> and then we'd do more group therapy or meet with our psychiatrist, dietitian, or individual therapist. Uh, and then it would be like three o'clock and then we'd go home. And we would do that five days a week. And during the time in treatment, your weight is being constantly monitored. And like there's some debate about whether weighing in treatment is necessary and, um, how much emphasis is put on weight in treatment. But at least for insurance purposes uh, in the States, once you reached a certain weight, then insurance was like, you don't have an eating disorder anymore, you're fine. More problems (laughs) with that, with weight stigma. Um, But yeah, so that was kind of the the day-to-day. And so then once my BMI reached a certain point, then insurance kicked me down to IOP. And once I reached another certain weight, then insurance was like, okay, you're done with IOP, you're fine. And I think, especially in the States, that's something that a lot of people experience because eating disorder treatment is super duper expensive. And so if insurance isn't going to pay for it, um, you're going to, it's going to be very difficult for you to get the care that you need. So I was fortunate that I was at a really strong treatment center. That was great. And, um, I got a lot of help during the 10 weeks that insurance was covering me, but, um, a lot of people don't have that experience. And you know that's another systemic issue that prevents eating disorder um, treatment in the United States and eating disorder recovery.
2: It's sort of surprising to me that the criteria for who gets insurance for eating disorder treatment is based on weight, because first of all, it seems to me that your physical progress could overtake your mental progress. So for example, you might be able to gain a lot of weight initially, and so you might get back to a quote unquote normal body weight, but then your mental state may not have caught up. Another thing that seems strange about this criteria is that the nature of certain eating disorders, such as bulimia, for example, could be that the individuals might not actually be underweight. So in bulimia, yes, you're purging, and you're also consuming a lot of calories. So you might not always be necessarily offsetting the amount of calories that have been consumed, and I could see that you could be at a normal or an even higher body weight.
1: So you're placed initially on the basis of how medically compromised you are. However, as you're gaining weight, it's seen as progress, at least in my case. Um, it was like, well, you're clearly doing well with this. Why should we continue to fund you when you are, you know, clearly thriving? Um, and now it looks like you don't even have an eating disorder anymore. If we look at your, you know, if we look at your biomarkers, your potassium's good, your sodium's good, your weight seems to be, you know, stable and normal within a healthy BMI range. So you're healed. <laughs> Everything else <laughs> with your eating disorder just doesn't exist anymore, um, which of course clearly is is inaccurate and potentially also is an explanation as to why the relapse rate for eating disorders is so high after these treatment programs, but I suppose that's neither here nor there.
0: So Jacqueline, when I think of the term relapse, it often makes me think about a trigger that causes the relapse, right? Which I know isn't necessarily the case. Um, But in my master's research, I looked at the sense of agency or sense of control in individuals with eating disorders. And that was hypothesized to be a major function of an eating disorder for a lot of people. And there is uh, some literature to support this. And I'm just wondering, in your experience, can you comment on whether you think there's credibility to that?
1: So interestingly enough, at Western, there's work being done on eating disorder, like the function, the different functions that eating disorders serve for people, because it would be inappropriate to say that eating disorders only serve one function for every single person that experiences them. Mm -hmm. Um, So Lindsay Bodell is doing that work. And actually the master student who is kind of taking that on right now is Abby Kinnear. She's fabulous. She's really great. Um, But eating disorders serve many functions for for different people, certainly uh, as a coping mechanism. Uh Yes. Um, I think a lot of people, and this is not necessarily identified in the literature, but in eating disorder recovery world, oftentimes um, as a therapeutic technique, people will be encouraged to kind of externalize their eating disorder. So to see it as another person. And a lot of times people will talk about their eating disorder in the third person. So we see, we see this in like pro Anna and pro Mia communities where people will refer to their eating disorders as Anna or as Mia and people see them as something that is constantly with them. People sometimes see their eating disorder as like a friend to them. So when everything else is out of control, when they don't have people around them, their eating disorder is what provides them with comfort. Um, And, you know, in many ways, it, it makes sense, um, whether it's a purging style disorder or a restrictive style disorder, or frankly, a, a binge style disorder, because that repetitive behavior that you consistently are doing, that is what soothes you in that moment. Um, and especially, so like in eating disorders, in, in anorexia in particular, The idea of consuming something that you don't know what it will do to your body can be terrifying. So not doing it can make you feel like, you know, first of all, you have a sense of control over what you're doing, but it also alleviates the potential anxiety you would feel from eating. Um, And a lot of times people will talk about this with purging disorders as well, where it's like you feel, um, and obviously a trigger warning for any of this stuff, because this is... This could potentially sound like a like a pro eating disorder thing. It's not. It's a false sense of agency and control over your life. But um, purging can also make people feel like very clean. Um, It can people can feel like okay, well now it's all it's all gone from my body. And then um, binging also it's it's like the repetitive sense of like moving something into your body. Usually it's, you know, um, highly palatable foods that taste good. And so that act is soothing as well. So in many ways they can be something that can serve as a source of comfort particularly amid situations of high anxiety. Um, but there are different functions for different people.
2: Of course. Does increased periods of stress in someone's life coincide with increased severity of their eating disorder symptoms?
1: Yes. Um, and also stress is one of the, and work stress in particular, interestingly, um, this was just stuff that we found out doing the eating disorders at work research, but Stress is one of the biggest triggers of eating disorder relapse, even after periods of remission. So stress absolutely can encourage people to go back to their eating disorder or increase their eating disorder symptomatology. Yes, certainly. We often talk about eating disorders as like a diathesis stress model. So people have a susceptibility to disordered eating to begin with, and then there's a stressor and then that triggers it. And so that can happen even after the initial trigger happens.
2: So, sort of more on the topic of stress, I noticed in your paper about women struggling with eating disorders in the workplace that having a supervisor or a boss who the woman perceived might react harshly if they found out that she had an eating disorder actually contributed negatively towards that individual's eating disorder. Is there anything that can be done from a supervisor or a boss's perspective that could help ease the stress on anyone in their lab who might be struggling with an eating disorder? It's a very... Difficult situation if you suspect that someone
1: might have an eating disorder, um, because the it would be lovely, and in an ideal world, it would be great to just be able to go up to say to someone and say, "Hey, it seems like you might be struggling with something. Um, you know, is there anything I can do to help?" But <laughs> Um, first of all, if they're not, that can be pretty offensive. And second of all, even if they are, they may say, you know, that's not your business, or they might actually feel embarrassed that the things that they're trying to do in private are being picked up by other people. So it's supervisors are in a very difficult situation. Um, and typically what we saw, at least in the interviews and, and in other research, it's like, if if you don't have a close relationship with the person like you probably shouldn't say anything um because because it is such a personal and private thing it may be it may make the person feel self-conscious um which could if we're talking about stress could potentially increase their eating disorder symptoms um so in general what we have suggested is like creating an open workspace where mental health discussions are normative um creating and and Realistically, more broadly, having policies in place that support taking time off for mental health, um, because if people think they're going to be stigmatized, then they're not going to disclose and lack of disclosures associated with poor outcomes for eating disorders and other conditions um, in general. So creating a workplace environment where these conversations are normative is going to be helpful. Um, going up to someone and, and saying, uh, hey, I think you might. Hey, you look like you have an eating disorder. Not not helpful. Very bad. Um And I think, too, something that we picked up in those interviews is that people felt comfortable talking to others with eating disorders about their own eating disorders. So, like, if you do, if you're a supervisor and you do have experience with an eating disorder, like, you can disclose that to other people and then they will feel more comfortable disclosing back to you. Um, But if you don't have that experience, obviously don't, like, make it up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jacqueline, would that advice extend to very close family members or friends that you're concerned about um, and who know that you love them? Would it be a bad idea to directly confront the individual in that case as well? So it's a
1: difficult question, particularly as it relates to eating disorders, because they can be Mm -hmm. life-threatening. And so I don't, You know, it's, it's kind of a, it's a moral question of like, do you say something or do you don't, or do you not rather? Um, I think it can be stressful for people with eating disorders to think, oh no, people know, and I didn't want anyone to know. Um, And so if, and also like you can't force someone to get help. So just saying that you recognize it um, might not really be all that helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And also saying, you know, if you need anything, you can talk to me about it might also not be helpful because what the person needs is professional help and by using you as like a sounding board instead of getting professional help that could also potentially prevent them from getting the treatment that they actually need. There is someone that can provide that service to them. And there is a professional person who has been trained to do that. And that is who they should see, um, not you. And I only say that because people do certainly have a tendency to reach out to people with eating disorders and say, like, you know, if you want to talk to me about anything, I'm, I'm here for you.
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but people give awful advice to people with eating disorders. And, uh, with a condition so severe as eating disorders, it's really not something that the everyday person can help with in general. Um, it's something that really needs to be discussed with someone who has been trained to provide this advice to them. Um, so in general, like if you think that someone that you love is, is, dealing with an eating disorder, if you love them, you know they love you, you have a close relationship where you talk about things like this or would feel comfortable talking about things like this, then yeah, I do think that it's something that you can bring up with them. But if it's like some random person in a class you're taking, um, your words probably won't get through to them Mm -hmm. anyway um, and it might embarrass them. So every person has to make that decision for themselves. Mm I'm not certain it will be the most helpful. Um, something to consider is if you, you know someone like a friend of a friend who might be struggling with an eating disorder, you can potentially, um, though it might embarrass the actual person struggling, but something to consider is like talking to the friend between the two of you and saying like, hey, I, you know, it seems to me like you know your friend who you're really close with um, is struggling with this. Like maybe you wanna talk to her about this, but getting one degree closer if possible. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to point out, because I recognized it when I was saying that, I'm using she, her pronouns, um, because that's typical and that's normative, but eating disorders can happen in people of any gender identity. So just want to point that out.
2: Is the fact that eating disorders tend to occur more in females because eating disorders are truly more prevalent in females, or is it just that it's more underdiagnosed in males?
0: Oh,
1: what an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, amenorrhea was a necessary condition for eating disorders to be diagnosed in men uh, in anyone for a while, and so we're way behind on the times in diagnosing eating disorders in men. Um, and. A lot of and eating disorders in men will sometimes present qualitatively differently than eating disorders in women. And so when we saw in the DSM-5, the introduction of binge eating disorder as an eating disorder category, we saw like a way major spike in men being eat, diagnosed with eating disorders because that is how eating disorders present in men sometimes, actually a lot of the times. Um, so men comprise anywhere. If you look at the stats, they're kind of all over the place based on how we're um, assessing uh how we're assessing eating disorder prevalence, but anywhere from the traditional uh, number we give is like 10% of eating disorder uh, diagnoses are assigned to men, but that's not true. It's typically anywhere between 25 and 33% of eating disorder diagnoses go to men and men comprise 40% of the binge eating disorder um, diagnoses. So men are like definitely being diagnosed there more, but something that has not really been comprehensively addressed is the fact that muscularity-oriented disordered eating, which is being talked about more at least now, um, that's not going to be diagnosed as an eating disorder among men, despite the fact that it's highly prevalent because muscle, dy- um, well, muscle dysmorphic disorder technically falls under the obsessive-compulsive disorders category, which is separate from the feeding and eating disorders category. And some scholars, I believe it's Scott Griffiths over, Dr. Scott Griffiths, um, over in Australia, I believe he's made a case that muscularity-oriented disordered eating should be classified as an eating disorder among men and among some women as well but it's not at this point so while men are being diagnosed with this condition at, at like a fairly high rate they're not being recognized as having quote-unquote eating disorders so i in some ways i do think that well men are certainly being underdiagnosed men, eating disorders and men are certainly being underdiagnosed but that said as well um the unique sociocultural pressures on women to maintain a slender body, um, they're not the same across genders. And so I think that the pressures are different for women and men, um, although certainly there is an increasing appearance focus, an increasing and troubling appearance focus among men. So we're seeing eating disorders on the rise in that population, but I do still think that um it's not 50 50. I do think that more women are struggling with disordered eating. And I just want to add as well that like non-binary folks as well do struggle with eating disorders and folks in the LGBT community are an increased race of experiencing um, eating disorders as well. So it's bad everywhere is basically the long and short of it.
0: Mm-hmm. So along those same lines and touching upon some of the societal pressures in place uh, to stay thin and maintain a certain body type, there's a certain terminology that we use to talk about our bodies that really perpetuates body image issues. So, for example, some popular phrases at this time include things like hot girl summer, uh, curvy girl, or thick. And I think some of those are likely meant to reclaim a a bigger body image. Um, But I wonder, are these more harmful than helpful in the long run? Uh, hmm.
1: So I think some of this also gets into body positivity versus fat acceptance and like fat liberation. And so it is... Well, I think we can start with the obvious, which is anything that encourages unrealistic, sexualized, overly thin body image ideals in women is going to be harmful for women's mental health and their disordered eating um, and body image more broadly. So if we're talking about, quote unquote, hot girl summer, what counts as hot? Well, what we're going to see is the curvaceously thin ideal kind of perpetuated again. So large breasts, large bottom, um, but it tremendously thin waist, tremendously thin, thin thighs. Yeah. Yeah, like it's it's ridiculous. Um, There is, I think a lot of people see this quote unquote curvaceously thin but also muscular ideal as an improvement from the thin inspiration that we were seeing back in the late '90s and early 2000s. But really, what we're doing is that we're doing double damage to the body in trying to achieve both um, a very full ideal in some components of the body and a very Slim ideal in others because not only are people going to turn to dieting and disordered exercise to achieve the parts of the body that need to be smaller, but people may also consider cosmetic surgery for the parts of their bodies that they want to be bigger. Um, and so, yeah, very bad. Uh, not not a big fan of like the Instagram overly sexualized uh, body image ideals among women because they really do create unrealistic and impossible standards for women um, to achieve those. I think if we're talking about like thick and, um, you know, other fuller body image ideals, I think they're likely less harmful. However, when there is an ideal, then then that means engaging in behaviors to meet that ideal. And so that does not mean intuitive eating, and that does not mean, like, body neutrality. And it certainly doesn't mean fat acceptance, because what is considered to be thick is still, like, what, a size four to six, Um, maybe... maybe we'll go up to like a 10, but we know that the average body size in the United States is between a 14 and 18. And so we're still not even seeing average bodies being represented in these ideals. Um, So in general, um, well, I also just want to take this one step higher, because this is where we see the why it's critical that we put a social justice feminist lens on some of this, um, which is just why why are there body ideals for women? Like, why is this something that women have to constantly be thinking about? And why is this something that they have to be striving for when women have so much more to contribute to society and to the world? Like, why do we have to stop what we're doing to scroll through Instagram images, Photoshopped images of bodies that women have spent their time trying to achieve rather than thinking about their accomplishments and all the things that they've worked for outside of this. Why is this still the thing that is considered to be like the highest achievement of women to have a sexy body? It doesn't matter. <laughs> that matters so little for what women are and what women do. Um, and so um, I think in many ways, talking about women's bodies is good because we're having these conversations that are like broader in social justice but like women, what women's bodies look like it means so, so very little about what women are and what women can do. And if we want to actually see women as like equal members of society, then we have to stop talking about their bodies. <laughs> like it, it's, these are conversations that have been going on forever. Um, and ultimately, if we want to achieve a state of gender parity, then the conversation needs to shift from women's bodies to women's competencies. But of course the conversation we're having right now is about body image, but in general, there is an overemphasis on women's bodies, uh, broadly speaking.
2: We'd plan to ask about some of the ways that we can encourage body positivity. But I guess at the same time, another way that you could encourage body positivity, or at least not body negativity, might be to shift the focus away from your appearance almost entirely and focus on other things that make you you.
1: Yeah, I think that I have two kind of responses when people talk about body positivity. A lot of scholars have begun talking about body neutrality. And so we, you know, we talk about celebrating bodies and, you know, feeling good in your body, but it matters so little. (laughs) Like you have to get to a point where you don't feel oppressed by beauty standards and where you don't hate your body. But then beside that, beyond that, your body matters very little for what you do and what you contribute to the world Um, and the relationships you maintain and the people whose days you make every day. So getting to a point of body neutrality is something that's good. However, um, and this is like what I was talking about with being oppressed by beauty standards, we as a society need to be speaking more broadly about weight stigma and like truly fat hatred and how it is that we live in a society where having a fat body not only puts you in a position of stigma and marginalization, but actually can expose you to like harm um, from medical communities, from you know people on the street. It's We have to kind of grapple with the fact that, Stigma against people who have fat bodies remains not just um, something that happens on the day-to-day, but a normative and socially acceptable form of prejudice against people. I um, mean, in fact, someone that's encouraged, because there is a belief that stigmatizing people in fat bodies will encourage them to lose weight, which, first of all, it doesn't. It just makes them uh, feel bad. And then, actually, we see experiences of weight stigma associated with increased body size and body weight. So, actually being mean to people doesn't make them want to do what you want them to do. Shocker. And, um, but I think if we're going to talk about, you know, you have to feel good in your body. You have to talk about the fact that we live in a world that tells you, you should not feel good in that body. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are things that we can do to Kind of put a band-aid on the hurt that we all experience every day from living in a fat phobic society we can you know do self-compassion exercises and we can look at you know body positive uh, stuff on social media but at the end of the day we still live in a society in which those little things are necessary to get through the day and so i think tackling weight um weight stigma and fat phobia Not just being aware of it, but actually like clapping back to it is something that's really powerful. And so like this kind of comes back to the work that I'm doing in my postdoc, but um, the body project broadly is a really effective eating disorder prevention program, because it utilizes this cognitive dissonance based strategy and dissonance based um, eating disorder prevention programs are in general are quite effective but one of the strategies that you do in the body project is you like write a letter to um a clothing store and you're like or or, you know a I suppose, a designer brand or whatever, and you talk about the unrealistic beauty standards that are being set for women. And so actually taking a kind of activist stance against some of the kind of BS that women experience on the day-to-day and that people in general experience on the day-to-day as it relates to their body can be a really effective strategy for feeling good about your body. Um, But then also, yeah, focusing on stuff that's not your body um, can also be really effective.
0: I love the idea of writing letters to call out unrealistic beauty standards. It's such a personal and powerful and relatively easy, actionable way to fight back against the stigma. But that's just the beginning, right? Just as you pointed out, Jacqueline, we're set up in this never-ending game of cat and mouse, chasing after a body that will always be juxtaposed to to our actual bodies that's how they get
1: you because we're constantly striving toward an ideal that doesn't actually exist. And when you finally meet it, it changes again. And that's how, I mean, lots of writers have suggested that this is one of the ways in which we keep women underpowered is by focus, forcing them to focus on the ways that their body appeared to others, instead of focusing on actually tackling systemic issues that they may be facing. Um, Naomi Wolf has a fantastic quote about Um, society not allowing women to see past their dinner plates um, in order to actually recognize the fact that they are being structurally discriminated against in various different ways. Um, And I think it does make sense because if we're constantly focused on changing our bodies to meet a specific ideal that then changes again, um, (laughs) then it's just constantly another way to keep our cognitive resources spent on something that does not actually matter, except making ourselves you know often in a heterosexual sense be appealing to men and if we're constantly just working to appeal to men then we're not actually tackling systemic discrimination against women in a substantial way
0: mm-hmm. absolutely Jacqueline so Jacqueline if there were just a couple of things that you'd suggest or ask our listeners to do um, to help fight this stigma and just to sort of engage in this conversation what would those things be?
1: Um, so, I mean, I do also just kind of want to take a step back and be like and recognize that the social justice focus that I have is it's, it comes from like many, many years of, of being entrenched in this. And so I think a first step is reading up about weight stigma um, and oppressive beauty ideals for women and frankly for men, too, as they become more and more oppressive to men, um, I think educating yourself about the fact that this is not just like a fun thing that we do for Instagram, that it actually has really serious ramifications for the people who see those images. Um, and the people who are, are growing up in this culture, this appearance laid in and, you know, like centric culture that we're growing up in right now, like these, this, all this stuff really matters for the next generation. Um, and so, you know, read books about fat acceptance, read books about beauty ideals, Um, read up about um, body acceptance, body appreciation, body image functionality appreciation. There's like lots of different, I'm sorry, body functionality appreciation. There's a lot of different components to maintaining a positive body image that are important. But then also, I mean, I'm a feminist scholar. I'm always going to encourage feminist readings. Um, So reading up about Like The beauty myth and uh, Renee Engel's Beauty Sick, reading up about um, objectification and how it is that the sexual objectification of women consistently keeps them from living their lives in any meaningful way by forcing us to focus on our bodies in the ways that we appear to other people. Um, I think reading is a first step. Um, And then I think another thing that can be helpful is like look at your social media, and if you feel awful about yourself after it, (laughs) then think about what parts of it you can remove. And so, um, you know, there's kind of mixed evidence that supports and doesn't support these following these quote unquote body positivity accounts, because oftentimes what we see in body positivity is like a little bit larger, but not, but still tremendously. Than white women being like, look at me, I accept my body as it is. Of course, you do. You meet a cultural standard. That's not surprising. So, um, thinking broadly about like what body positive content are you consuming, um, and also can you flip that? So if you're looking at images of bodies, can they be like funny images of bodies? There's a study that came out a few years ago by Amy Slater and colleagues that looked at Celeste Barber's account. Um, And basically what she does is she mocks supermodels where she's like, this pose is ridiculous and you look silly doing it. So I'm seeing nods. I'm Perhaps you folks are familiar with her, but after she's viewing, so, she's really funny. <laughs> yeah. After viewing her images, people had better body image um, at, compared to viewing uh, spin ideals or like no or control conditions. So she's she's great. Um, thinking about how beauty ideals are ridiculous can be helpful, but then also being like, why am I only seeing bodies on my timeline can be another thing. So consider like, what are your other interests and hobbies? Can you find ways to engage with that media instead? Um, because media is certainly uh, one way that, We absorb information about bodies. Um, Another thing that you can consider is like being grateful for your body exactly as it is today. What is it that your body allows you to do rather than what it looks like? Thinking about its functionality rather than its appearance. Um, And the body does so many wonderful things. It lets you walk and it lets you go see your friends when you're wearing a mask or fully vaccinated. Um, Public health is important. Um, It allows you to like, you know engage in sex and feel close with your partners if that's something that you're interested in like the body does so many magnificent things that are not contingent upon its appearance um and also just like think about the people in your life think about the conversations that you're having with people and think about your own language surrounding your body and the language that people around you use and if you don't feel comfortable with the way that people are talking about bodies around you you can say something to them and they may feel uncomfortable But oh, well, then you don't feel uncomfortable and those conversations will likely stop around you. Um, Like fat talk and diet talk, they're consistently associated with negative body image among people who either engage in those conversations or overhear those conversations. So trying to switch the ways that we talk about our bodies um, or the things that we talk about more broadly can also be helpful. Um, So these are just like a few different strategies. If, If you go to like the National Eating Disorders Association website or the National... Eating Disorders Information Center in Canada, you'll find lots of different strategies for improving body image, but fundamentally, radically, we live in a culture in which uh, fat bodies are stigmatized bodies. And so taking direct action and really taking an activist stance against some of this like body image nonsense is is probably going to be a more effective way to address this long-term. Also therapy. If, it, if it's really like an acute issue, um, talking to a therapist consistently will help, hopefully.
2: Are these sorts of topics covered on your podcast, The Feminist Academic? <laughs> um, so I don't talk
1: on my podcast. Um, I interview other scholars. So I like to say that my role in my podcast is to be the friend who sits at the back of your dissertation defense and then asks you questions that you know the answer to to make you look good. So, <laughs> <laughs> mostly what I do is like when I read cool papers, I'll reach out to the authors and say, "Your paper is so cool. I loved reading about it. Other people are gonna want to hear about it, um, and not behind a paywall. And so let me, you know, let me lob you easy questions that you can then hit home runs out of the park for, and everybody can say, "Ooh, ah, wow, you're amazing." Um, and typically I try to interview um, women and early career women and non-binary folks, um, people who you know are otherwise minoritized in the academy so that they can you know, get some publicity, their papers can be understood and digested by more people. Uh, so no, I haven't really talked about any of this stuff on the podcast. It's more like we talked about sexual harassment, gender diversity, sexual orientation diversity. I've, done all, I've interviewed quite a few criminologists for the podcast, um, because I love true crime stuff. And so I loved reading their papers and and things. But um, the list is growing. I I did take a little bit of a a break from podcasting as I was finishing my dissertation. But I'm hoping that I will be able to get back into it um, during my postdoc.
2: That sounds really interesting. I love the idea of throwing people easy questions that they can answer to gain some exposure for their research. If any of our listeners did want to find your podcast, where could they find it?
1: Um, right now it's only on Apple Podcasts and my personal website just because I just didn't set it up for Spotify or um, Stitcher yet Uh, but it's on Apple Podcasts you can just look up The Feminist Academic and it will come right up there's only a few episodes right now but hopefully there will be more soon
0: amazing we'll be sure to check it out and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will too all right, Jacqueline, so it's time to wrap up and we like to end our shows with a segment called Endor Fun. Endor Fin. Endor Fun? End on Fun. All right, so Jacqueline, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why?
1: Ooh, um, I think I would want... Ooh, I don't even know if this is a superpower, but I would want to have the capacity to grant wishes. I think I would want to be like a genie, Ooh. um, because oh my goodness, there are so many people who are experiencing so many forms of hardship who just need like a thing or two to really transform their situations. And how beautiful to be able to be the person that provides that.
2: How it's like giving oh. of you. How wonderful. That's like the best answer I've ever heard to that yeah, question. I know. Everyone else is always like, I want to fly. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> or that would have been my answer, 100%.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like
1: superpowers have the potential to help many people and not just be like, a cool thing that I'm able to do and tell people about at parties. <laughs>
2: Very true.
0: Thanks so much, Jacqueline, for joining us and sharing your story as well as shedding some insights into some of the excellent research around eating disorders that's happening right now.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you both. Thank you for letting me uh, get a little feminist ranty. It was great. I feel like I learned a lot today. (laughs) Well, thank you both. I appreciate it. And with that, we conclude another episode of Brain Matter Chatter. Maya Angelou once said, There's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Let's keep speaking our minds and sharing our stories. To our listeners, please visit at Brain Matter Chat on Instagram or Twitter to find a list of available mental health and wellness resources. The content today was brought to you by Julia, Naveen, Haley, Olivia, and Ruby. This episode is a Society of Neuroscience Graduate Students production and is generously supported by the Society of Graduate Students, the School of Graduate and Postdoctoral Studies, Student Experience, and BrainScan at Western University. All music was provided by FreeBeats.io and produced by WhiteHot. Additionally, we thank our featured guest for speaking with us today.